Radical opinion here, but one job should give you a livable income. You shouldn't have to go out there and bust your ass at 3am working in your second or third job just to pay the bills. Dr Zoe Port, workplace advocate, unionist, anarchist? You know, in an ideal world we'd all rise up and revolt against the bosses. In the cost of living crisis, some teens are now facing impossible choices between staying in school and supporting their families. She's one of a record number of Australians with more than one job. Almost 10% of workers aged 18 to 25 find themselves in the same shoes. Multiple job holding, it's not either wholly good or wholly bad. While many people, including myself, enjoy a pizza party, it's not conducive to actually making meaningful change in workplaces in Aotearoa. Those who are being forced into these crap work situations, who are having to work multiple jobs because they can't get one decent job, they are suffering, so this is what we have the potential to alleviate. Jobs. Some of us love it so much we've got more than one. I'm a multiple job holder, so is Summer, so is Tabby. The days of standard work being single employment and a full-time, Monday to Friday, 9 to 5 job are slipping away. But multiple job holders are a particularly diverse group. That lifestyle can be actively chosen or it can be a last resort. What's crucial to understand about multiple job holders as a group is their heterogeneity. We all exist under the same banner, but for very, very different reasons which makes us hard to advocate for, and even research. Until now. Let's get to work with Dr. Zoe Port. This is PhD Unpacked. Before we get into your research, can you tell us a little bit about your personal background and I guess how you ended up writing this PhD specifically? I'm a unionist. I believe in the power of unions and collective action and have always been about wanting to improve, you know, work and the experiences of work for people. Um, but that started out uh, when I first headed to uni for undergrad. The way that started was me thinking I wanted to go into HR, human resources, thinking that that's, that's going to help me make work positive for people. You know, I did that with my undergrad and worked in HR for a couple of years. But my second um, grad job after uni, I didn't know it when I started, but I was actually the 15th person in that one job in five years. That's what we would call, you know, high turnover. I had this manager who was really, I guess you could say, particular um, in, in how she managed. She was very critical, um, she was very nitpicky. You know, when I first started, she would say to me, oh, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. You're so much better than all the other, you know, employees I've had before you, which in hindsight was a massive red flag. Um, but again, I was just happy, young worker, 22 years old. Oh, my boss likes me, yay. But sort of within a month or two, kind of the cracks started to show. I remember one day during one of my boss's rants, um, and she was coincidentally anti-union, I remember just kind of looking past her, it was like a movie, looking past her out the window and just having this moment and thinking exactly this, thinking, fuck this, I don't want to be an HR manager, I want to be you know, like the next Helen Kelly, who um, the late Helen Kelly was at the time the president of the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions. Now, I'm not saying I want to be the president, but I wanted to, I had that moment, I want to do what she does for workers. And so I was coming out of that that time, you know, crying on my, my colleague's floor, thinking I've my career is done for. But what I did know is that I wanted to go back to uni and do postgrad to do some research about health and safety, hmm. some kind of research that would help me make work healthier and safer for people. I end up at Massey um, in a postgrad research methods class, um, and the lecturer 
is introducing himself to the class and he says, I'm a member of the Healthy Work Group. We're a research team and we research things like workplace bullying. And then this, literally this little light bulb goes off in my head and I go home and I look up workplace bullying because um, I'm a massive nerd. I go to the library, I get books out on workplace bullying and literally reading about the academic work on workplace bullying, what it is, it was literally like a checklist of all the things my former boss was, was doing to me. And so it was that was the very first time that I actually thought, hang on, maybe that wasn't all my fault. You know, maybe that was actually unfair treatment that shouldn't have happened. So I guess that was really validating. And then, I mean, I was already fairly keen about, you know, doing postgrad and doing research, but that just propelled me into it even further. Just knowing from then on, I wanted to be doing research to just advance the state of workers in some way, but especially in relation to their well-being. And so at some point uh, along that journey, you ended up in a position where you discovered uh, that, that students, was it the students that you were lecturing, there was like a high propensity of people with uh, multiple job holding? That's sort of how that spark of the, the PhD opened yeah. up, right? Yeah, it definitely is. I came into the PhD knowing, okay, I want to look at something about non-standard work, these non-typical forms of work, they're interesting to me. I want to know about their experiences and their well-being. But it wasn't until later in that year I honed in on, on multiple job holding and that did come, that spark of inspiration did come from my students. Like I remember this one student in particular and she said, oh look, I'm really sorry for not coming to see you before now. I haven't been able to make it to class because I'm working three jobs to support my family. And that moment really just kind of the penny dropped for me and I thought, this is actually really quite common. This idea all comes round to the point of that multiple job holding is is more common than ever, but is more diverse than ever, right? Mm. That's sort of what surrounds this whole ethos of what your research explores. Absolutely. And I guess I was really interested in that kind of, well, it's not even a dichotomy, it's a full spectrum of the, the differences in, in multiple job holding. Because on one hand... Um, you know, you can see it as a real dire thing, like, oh, people are having to hold multiple jobs just to get by, which they absolutely are, and which is absolutely serious and we need to be aware of. But then on the other hand, we've got the very glamorized side hustle. And I guess that kind of, being someone who was drawn towards the most vulnerable groups of workers, I hated to see yeah, the side hustle being glamorized so much. Um, cool, if it works for people, that's amazing. But we we can't be kind of glossing over the real dire situations of multiple job holding. The cleaner in Otara who is cleaning three different schools in one night just to make up enough money to pay the kids you know, school fees and school camp because cleaning one school isn't going to cut it. So, yeah, I was really drawn towards those two extremes and doing them both justice. And I guess in line with that too, I did start my PhD in 2017 I actually did most of the work in 2020, and we all know what happened in, in 2020, but in that kind of discourse around the pandemic, I remember one of these quotes, it was along the lines of, if you don't come out of the pandemic or lockdown with a new hobby or a side hustle or, you know, a new stream of income, you didn't lack time, you were just lazy, and I hate that so much. It was saying that, oh, well, you're stuck at home. So make good use of the time, which is just internalized capitalism 101. There was all this discourse around, this is the time to get a second stream of income, be branching out in this way. And I just hate to see it glamorized when we're forgetting about those who are the most vulnerable in this situation. And they're not the ones who are choosing to be a yoga teacher, which is great, on top of their office job. The thing that frames this entire bit investigation and why your research is so valuable is the kind of why does this all matter so much? And the reason why it matters so much is because of this 
this idea of psychosocial risk, which was something that I'd never heard of before until we read your PhD. Can you explain what psychosocial risk is and why it's so important? I guess in this contemporary post-COVID world where work seems to be a greater discussion than it has ever before. And yeah, why why it would be really helpful for people to understand, mm. I guess, just before we dive in, into the yeah. bulk of the PhD. Yeah, absolutely. So forgive me, but I'm going to have to drop in a few different terms here. So before we get to the idea of psychosocial risk, it's a way of looking at and sort of almost assessing work. There's a concept called the psychosocial work environment, and this is basically, it describes the way that work is inherently designed, organized, and managed. So the factors that make that up. So, you know, what is your workload like? What is the content of your work? How fast do you have to work? Um what sort of support do you have available in terms of your colleagues and your managers? What are the other interpersonal relationships like? Um, how much control do you have over what you do? Uh, how, how emotionally demanding is your work? These are all examples of what we call psychosocial factors. So it's the idea these factors make up the psychosocial work environment, like the factor of workload, for example. It's not good or bad, it just is. You have workload of some type. It may be high, it may be low. Now, psychosocial risk comes in when these factors are experienced by the individual worker in a negative way. So I just mentioned, you know, workload is one factor. It may be high, it may be low. Now, actually, having really, really high workload can pose a psychosocial hazard. Um, but what is high workload to you? You know, you may thrive with high workload, I may not. Um, ju equally, just the same, really low workload and being really understimulated and bored at work can also pose a psychosocial hazard. And I guess just to draw a parallel, it's helpful to think of psychosocial risks, if you will, alongside the more kind of obvious work risks. So people working with chemicals, we know particularly from the pandemic, our healthcare workers, there were really severe biological risks. Um, you know, we know if we walk in a work site and see a shelf that looks like it's about to topple over, physical risk, or we know slumping over our computer, that's an ergonomic risk. So psychosocial risk is the idea that just as those things can and do cause harm, so too can the way that work is designed and organized and managed. And it feels like this discussions around this area, at least from my subjective perspective, seems to be happening more and more and more. But why your PhD is so helpful is to actually try and understand what is what is going on rather than just thinking, am I happy in my workplace? Am I unhappy in my workplace? Am I overstressed? Am I overtired? I think a lot of conversations are being had around these fringes by people that may not understand, you know, specific examples of what is healthy work, what mm. is not healthy work. Why is that the case? And I remember when we spoke to you the first time, I'm probably paraphrasing, but you said something along the lines of less pizza parties and more <laughs> actual helpful frameworks. I was like, that's exactly it. The amount of stories I've heard of, you know, f food just trying to yeah. be the answer to all problems. While many people, including myself, enjoy a pizza party, it's not conducive to actually ch making meaningful change in workplaces in Aotearoa. Exactly. No, I could I could get up on a soapbox about this for hours. But and I, I I do love pizza myself. I can demolish a whole one myself. And will that help in my work? Quite possibly. But I guess a really good comparison to draw there is though it's pizza parties, Fitbits, free fruit in the lunchroom. Dare I say it? mindfulness training, resilience training, these things may help, but they are all individual measures. It's, 
you know, we're going to we're going to equip you to be a more resilient worker so you can withstand the challenges of this work environment. It's like, hang on, mate, why don't we try to take it to a higher level? Why are we just trying to target the individual, make the individual, you know, more resilient, um, get the individual to do some mindfulness exercises when they feel work is getting stressful? The psychosocial work environment concept, it tries to address those things at a at a higher level, saying, can we redesign work to actually not have these hazards in the first place? Now, a disclaimer, I'm absolutely not rubbishing mindfulness or resilience or any of those things, and if that works for an individual, awesome, amazing, absolutely do that, but I guess from the employer perspective, I'm just going to go out there and say it. it's a lazy approach if that's all you're doing and you're not trying to look at things at a higher level and make more widespread change to work and the impact it has on your workers. So Zoe, the bulk of your research was split into two different studies. Um, I want to start on the, the first one because it's the natural progression within your research. The first study was called The Main Job Issue. Tell us about it. What was the purpose of that first study within the overall thesis? What, what were you trying to achieve from that particular bit of work? Well, I guess some really important context first. I was wanting to do a survey that asked multiple job holders about their experience of work because I was thinking, okay, I think that there are different types. I think those types can sort of be grouped based on how people experience multiple job holding. I had the dilemma where I wanted to ask people these questions. I needed them to answer them about one of their jobs, but, you know, how do you decide which job? The, the the multiple job holding research had sort of dealt with this a little bit. Um, some studies had gotten people to fill out surveys or had or done research and said, answer these questions about your main job. I'm like, okay, I, c- I can use that kind of terminology, but actually what is a main job? Some of the research had given people criteria. It had said, okay, answer this about your main job. Your main job is the one that you've worked in the longest or it was that you've earned the most money in. Whereas for me, if I was wanting to meaningfully understand these multiple job holders' experiences, it just felt wrong to A, impose an arbitrary criteria, like for me to say, tell me about the job that you worked the most hours in. Um, Because actually someone with multiple jobs, the job that they work the most hours in, that may not actually mean much to them. They may just be doing it to keep the lights on so that on the weekend they can, you know, have the money to play in their band. So I was stuck with this whole dilemma about the main job. And again, coming back to the idea that I was interested in people's experiences, I thought, well, I'm going to find out what does this whole thing of a main job mean to multiple job holders? Maybe that will help me in some way with the second study. So basically what I kind of set out to do was find out, you know, as a multiple job holder, when I say to you, what's the main job? What does that mean to you? How do you choose a main job? You know, what are the criteria you use? And I guess ultimately what this study within the wider PhD and research points towards, as you've spoken about, is that answering the what is your main job, or I'll put in my own one there, what do you do for work, is a really difficult question. I've Mm. certainly faced that as someone who's, as a multiple job holder, I find that answering that question often depends on the person who's asking it, Mm. the situation. There, for me, I don't have one answer to that question. Mm. I will answer it based on the time and the space of that specific conversation. Yeah. And that's sort of 
what you found within the study, right? In terms of there being no single all-encompassing criteria that is constantly relied upon by multiple job holders to select domain job. The answer is there's no clear answer. Yeah, yeah, that was basically it. And actually, I've got a question for you because mm. this is one way of looking at the main job that one of my participants actually kind of said. And I was like, huh, when you come back into New Zealand after being overseas on the little arrival card, when it asks, what you, what's your job? What do you put? It's it's funny you should say that because I've been thinking about this <laughs> as the framing for this piece of research. For me, I write actor on it. Yeah. But there, there are other things where I'll write barista, mm. hospitality worker, creative. I probably have six or seven different answers to that mm. question. But the airline question for me and i think it's because the form is so small that yeah. you only have room to write one answer even though it kind of implies one answer yeah. i take great pride in writing actor on that mm. piece of form but there are other times in life where i'm not confident enough in whatever that answer is in mm. that situation and i'll speak to to something else but yeah for me personally responding to the study as a as multiple job holder i recognized versions of myself within the nine different uh, elements, which very quickly you listed most of them. Investment, passion, stability, security, most time consumed, long-term focus, pride and identity, energy expenditure, entitlements and benefits, quantum of income and tenure. I recognized elements of all of those mm. things. And in trying to answer it for myself, it made me think, well, at different times on different days of different weeks of different years, I would lean more towards that and that ultimately mm. is is where that research ended up mm. for that question right that it's really complicated and the identity of why something is your main job can vary for different people and also for each person mm. can vary within situations but there is no one answer which is kind of in a way you're like ah okay but actually that was really valuable because what i was hoping to get from that study was some guidance about what on earth i should do for study two when i'm asking people to choose a main job and I was sort of thinking, well, maybe if we get one clear factor leading the way, maybe I'll use that. Maybe I won't. But actually, because it was so diverse, even within each individual person, um, I'm really glad I used those little scenarios because I think that that was perfect for the situation and it really helped to tease out the meaning. Because from that, I got those really rich discussions on someone saying, well, actually, I choose my main job this way, but for... Susie, who is cleaning three different schools, her husband can't work after a workplace accident, so she's the breadwinner. Uh, it's this job that's permanent. This is her main job because it's her own situation. Whereas Louisa, who is a fashion designer, this is her main job because it's what she wants to do long term. So what I really pulled out of that was it really does depend on the situation and there is no one size fits all criteria which meant that the answer I took through to study two was to actually... Um, let people self-select their own main job in the survey and um, actually capture that as well. Which was an answer in and of itself. And yeah. it is worth pointing out that, and you know, you can read about this if you go and read the entirety of Zoe's PhD. There were answers within mm. that data set. Like you pointed to the, that stability was the number one. If you had to choose mm. a number one, the idea of stability within a job was the, uh, the, the thing that kind of rose to the top. And I think hours worked was number two. Mm. I think often people would think that money would fill mm. at least one or two within that spot, and that wasn't the case. So your your research within that study did did show some level of, of priority, but ultimately where we got to mm. and what led you to let people self-select their main job for study two was this idea about it kind of just depends, yeah. and that's 
the whole nuance of of the heterogeneity of mm. the situation. And so study two, were there a couple of specific things that you were actually trying to come out of it with with a, a new perspective on? Yeah, so I guess, as you said, the objective of that, it was, uh, and this was a study I did come up with first, was I want to see if there are different types of multiple job holder um, because I think that the different types will explain the differing experiences we see. So there were two kind of phases, I guess, to the study. First of all, I had to go in to find out, are there actually different types, first of all? And those types were based on their situational factors. So that was, um, for example, I asked a whole lot of questions about their psychosocial work environment, i.e. the factors they experienced, things like workload, work pace, the amount of control they have at work, the opportunities for development, support from their colleagues, support from their managers, um, think all those sorts of factors. Very long list, won't recount them all. And I also captured things like their reason for having multiple jobs and whether or not they were doing so by choice, um, other things like whether or not they were the breadwinner in their household and whether or not after... Um, whether or not their income basically gave them enough money to pay expenses, did it leave them with money left, were they short, were they just right, all of those sorts of situational factors. Within the research you found these kind of four classes of multiple job holders which you you labelled the compelled class, the striver class, the peripheral class and the privileged class. Was it I guess in, in, in finding this discovery of, of four different kinds of multiple job holders, was it really surprising to you that, I guess, how people fit into those different boxes and, I don't know, there being four rather than ten or rather than, than two? When when you looked at all the data, which was ultimately, I think, a 507-person sample size, everyone had to identify as having more than one job. They had to be usually working in New Zealand. They had to be 18-plus. When all all that, that data came to sit and you ultimately went, wow, there's there's these four classes here. Was that was that a surprise? Talk us through, I guess, any any and all of, of the, the four different classes of multiple job holders that you found. Within the psychosocial work environment, um, those factors I talk about, one way that we commonly group those in terms of either being demands or resources. So demands are things like workload, um, the pace you work at, um, you know, having to hide your emotions at work, whereas resources are things that help you to cope with those demands like support, control, autonomy over what you do, flexibility, predictability. It's probably an important point for me to make, particularly those who are very conscious of class. Um, the, the analysis is called latent class analysis, but um, I guess I officially call them types because mm. when you say class, you know, that has other connotations too. And the names too, you, I went through a lot of different versions of that, but I, I couldn't think of any other better way for example the privileged class they were they were doing it by choice um they were actually i think on average older so i think they were sort of people getting near to retirement their jobs may have been reasonably demanding but actually they had access to a lot of resources um they loved their situation they wanted to be doing it you know they were not you know scrimping and saving for money every week and it really did make a lot of sense whereas i guess the objectively the worst off type that what I called the compelled type I did I, I chose that name because they were forced into it they didn't want to be working multiple jobs if they didn't have to but they simply did have to for the money um, and generally they were the breadwinner for their household so they're carrying a real burden you know a job where you know somebody they were there were high demands a lot of things placed on you and you don't have a lot of support you don't have choice over anything you do um, those are jobs that are more likely to lead to strain. So we were seeing those groupings come through um, in a way that did actually make a lot of sense. T 
to some extent it was the two types in the middle of those two ends of the spectrum that I found most interesting and were perhaps the types that I wouldn't have necessarily expected or figured out on my own. Could you tell us a little bit about the striver type? The striver type, I gave them that name because they seem to sort of be striving for something better, you know, striving for something new. They weren't necessarily you know, forced into having multiple jobs. They weren't necessarily on the bones of their ass financially, but they, it might've been, they were trying to save for something more or they were trying to transition into a new career path. Um, they were, were most likely to be breadwinners. They had jobs that were objectively quite demanding. They had high work demands, but actually they also had access to high work resources. Um, so that's where I really got the sense that they're in jobs that seem to be stretching them. Mm. And then the other type was the peripheral type. Um, they, I, I gave them that name because they're almost on the periphery. They don't, they didn't really seem overly affected by their work. Um, they were most likely to have all of their roles to be casual. Um, they were not likely to be the breadwinner. They weren't necessarily doing it by choice, but they didn't seem to be very anti multiple job holding. Um, and I think this often represented people who perhaps, yeah, they didn't hugely rely on the income from all sources, but maybe doing it to top up. Maybe they had someone else in their household who was earning the bulk of their income. So you discover these four d- different types, and you sort of you sort of finalise them, I guess, within your own your own framework. How did you then take that into the second phase of the study, phase B or phase two, which was you saying, look, it's all very well to discover that there are these different types, but do they hold up against uh, people's different experiences? Can you mm. tell us about, I guess, taking that phase into into phase B? Yeah, absolutely. So the Bear in mind, all of these variables had all come from the same survey, so I'd measured a bunch of those psychosocial factors, but from the same kind of, I guess, survey tool that looks at measuring the psychosocial work environment, that same one also used a lot of outcome variables, so it made sense for me to use the same things. Um, I measured a range, really wide range, I literally could not list them all off, but essentially they can be grouped into kind of mental health related variables, physical health related variables, and also some individual kind of work related variables. So those are things like um, job satisfaction, I think work engagement, and also self-efficacy. So kind of, you know, how capable do you sort of believe you are? Uh, The mental health outcomes, we had things like somatic stress, um, depression, I believe was one of them, things like sleeping trouble, which could span either way and then we had general physical symptoms so with that range of outcomes what I essentially was was trying to do with this phase two was um, something called an ANOVA test which basically looks at comparing the means of different groups and you know are those means uh, significantly different in a way that you know actually well is statistically significant I guess but it was the types were going to mean something if there were some differences in outcomes across the different types, but also kind of, I guess, if those differences were manifesting in a way that made sense. Because if we had the privileged type here and they had the worst outcomes, I would have been left scratching my head a little bit. Whereas um, the, t- the outcomes actually differed. And I once, not every single outcome was statistically significant in every single way, but essentially the way things mapped out, it was what you'd expect. The privileged class had the best objectively I guess objectively the best outcomes in terms of work related and health related Uh, but actually what was more interesting was that the compelled type and the striver type 
while the striver type, like I've said, they had really high resources at work, but they also had really high demands. The compelled type, they had overall the worst outcomes, but the striver type, they had fairly good work-related outcomes. So they were highly engaged at work. They were satisfied in their job, but actually then they had negative health outcomes, which is kind of conflicting in a way because you'd think, it's either all going to be all good or all not. And that was what made them so interesting. They had some aspects or some similarities to the privilege type in terms of, well, they're a super engaged worker, um, they're really satisfied in their job. But then just like the compelled type who was worst off, they had fairly negative health outcomes. And so I guess what the ANOVA test, testing to see how different people engaged and, and self-responded in terms of ideas like burnout and, and stress mm. and depressive symptoms. I'm sure you would have gone over the hypothesis that the people worse off, worst off, the compelled type, should be reporting back mm. the, the strongest, yes, we are facing these difficulties and the people down the other end of the spectrum should be responding mm. with... I guess a, a, a lesser presence of those those negative work health uh, factors, but as you say, it, it's more it's more complex than that. And I think the the striver type is really interesting to look at because you can be incredibly busy, you can have an incredibly high workload, but that doesn't always mean that you're worse off mm. you know if you love everything that you do it might be that you're really really tired but mm. actually your mental health in terms of seeing the value in what you're doing might be really high mm. but clearly within your research you came to a conclusion that there was enough crossover within what the phase b showed mm. that you could be fairly confident that the the four different types in phase a was responding in the way that you kind of thought they would to some extent yeah, definitely. And I guess research generally, you know, particularly with PhDs, you're meant to adop adopt some kind of theoretical overarching framework, I guess, rather than just, um, you know, going out into the forest and eating some edibles and then coming up with hypothesis, not knocking that. but um... And so I guess you you do your study one and then you do study two and you, you complete this piece of research and you step away from it while, as we've discussed, some of the conclusions are that there is no conclusion or that the conclusion is difficult and complex and nuanced. How do you feel about the takeaways of your research, both when you completed it in 2021, how you feel about it now, when you think of that piece of work and, and taking it as a, as a 300 page piece of research to go, right, how can we think about multiple job holders and I guess healthy work? generally within within this idea of non-standard work people probably feel a lot of the time when we talk about research findings you know listeners or people or even i know in the media oh my gosh don't never read the stuff comments with if, if you're on the paper but often people will go we'll talk about research conclusions and people will be like well i could have told you that yeah you could have but actually we need that data at scale having that validated through you know academic peer-reviewed research that is what helps us to you know, pick that up, pick up the book and, and throw it at whoever the book needs to be thrown at. So um, I, th I guess I do feel proud of the fact that there's that data to validate what many of us probably suspected and what I know that those cleaners out there in Otara cleaning three schools a night, what I know they are feeling. What I want to achieve more than anything, and this is my unionist streak coming through, is using the PhD and the privilege that affords me and the, the title when it when it helps me to get in a room to convince people of things, to basically say... Well, multiple job holding, it's not either wholly good or wholly bad, but we really need to, who we need to um, 
be most worried about is those who are forced into it. And when I say worried, what we need to be doing is trying to um, essentially prevent them from being forced into these situations. I mean, in my ideal world, sure, people would be holding multiple jobs, but they'd be doing it because they want to. Radical opinion here, but one job should give you a livable income. You know, you shouldn't have to go out there and bust your ass at 3am working in your second or third job just to pay the bills. So, I mean, I've used that a bit in lobbying. Uh, and one, I guess, avenue has been the select committee for various things. So we've recently in New Zealand had some legislation introduced called the Fair Pay Agreements Act, which essentially, I won't go into the very fine detail, but what it does is it, it sets up the ability for um, bargaining to take place for all workers in a sector. So for example, at the moment, one of the, the freshest fair pay agreement is for the hospitality, hospitality sector, yeah. which is very cool. Um, and that now obviously still has to go through the negotiation process. But what that would set are minimum terms and conditions for all people. I reckon fair pay agreements have the potential to allow these decent conditions to be set so that people aren't forced into picking up multiple jobs just because their pay is, is so shit. So one thing it stops is it, stop, it would help to stop the race to the bottom, which is one thing that drives this really low pay, these terrible conditions that we see and that would often drive people into multiple job holding. You know, um, large cleaning companies that outsource, they their competitive advantage shouldn't be able to be paying less than everyone else. So stepping slightly off my soapbox but um i was i was really stoked to be able to discuss my phd findings for the education and select force sorry for the education and workforce select committee mouthful um to actually say to them look this is why this is important i can tell you based on my research that those who are being forced into these crap work situations who are having to work multiple jobs because they can't get one decent job they are suffering so this is what we have the potential to alleviate. Um, I guess that's been first on my agenda because of my unionist streak. Um, not exactly out there lobbying for the privileged side side hustlers and multiple job holders, other than to say, hey, don't assume multiple job holdings all bad. You know, if someone's doing it by choice, we should let them. And I guess what I would say is that there are there's some talk of um, should people be allowed to hold multiple jobs? You know, should an organisation permit its employees to work somewhere else and I guess that's where I'd come at it from the perspective of well if they're doing it by choice they they're not necessarily doing it because they don't like their one job they want the variety so we shouldn't shut people out but we should be looking to eliminate the the really poor forms of work that are more likely to lead to those negative outcomes and I think as you've spoken about you know post-covid in the, the 2020s that we find ourselves in more and more people are finding themselves in if not multiple job holding situations forms of what would have once been considered non-standard mm. work and as people continue to have conversations about their workplace are they happy in their workplace are they in the wrong career should they change paths mm. am, am i being paid enough should i move to the uk within that conversation it's important to recognize I guess not necessarily where you sit on the spectrum that we've been discussing of work, but to take stock in and why 
how and why you've found yourself in the work situation that you've been in and all the elements of your research in terms of, you know, uh, your job satisfaction, you know, is it causing me to have terrible sleep? Why am I in this? Am I in this job because of the the pay? Am I in this job mm. because it's a step up for my career? We can, we can, and we probably should be more aware of not only where we position ourselves towards work, but also how the people around us consider themselves in mm. work. And that's why I think, you know, for me, your research is so interesting because I think fundamentally it can apply to pretty much everyone in New Zealand. Maybe not those who are nine years old and maybe not those <laughs> who are 99 years old. But for anyone who's in that kind of workforce age, we can all be thinking about how, like, how do we exist mm. in our workplace? And, and if you're wanting to make change for yourself like what isn't what is not going right and i just i really hope that this space of healthy work continues to to bloom because um, maybe it is just me in my own personal echo chamber that i recognize but it feels like i'm hearing these conversations more and more and more literally every month mm. like it's just for whatever reason we're all talking about about work how do you feel about about what the future holds for like workplace? I mean, you've spoken about you know your 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 unionist streak. Um, what do you think for multiple job holders the the future could should look like? We often talk about hope on PhD Unpacked. Like, have you could look back on this interview in a few years' times and go, wow, what has really changed? What like what is the dream for healthy work? I guess, well, specifically for multiple job holders, I'd love for those negative situations not to have to exist. Um, but I guess one reason I like the concept of the psychosocial work environment, and when I explain it to people, I think they find it validating, is because it's a way of thinking about, well, it's it's a way of, I guess, categorizing and conceptualizing how we think about work. Like, um, my friends will come to me and go, oh, I'm having a crap time at work. Oh, I'm so stressed today. I, I can't handle this thing that's happening at work. Maybe it's just me. And I go, hang on. Well, you've got a lot of demands in your work. You're, you're being expected to hide your emotions. You know, your workload is massive. And where's the support? So I guess I feel like, I don't know if part of it's a generational thing. I, I love Gen Z. I have so much admiration for Gen Z. They are just not afraid to get in there and call, call stuff out. Um, I feel like maybe we're becoming collectively becoming more willing to challenge stuff in our work and challenge those unhealthy work situations and I guess that's one reason I like the psychosocial work environment concept I don't necessarily want everyone to be going in and going to their boss's office and going I've heard of this thing called the psychosocial work environment that's you know people aren't going to love to do that but again if people are starting to think about the factors that make up their work and then able to you know, maybe talk about what isn't working for them. Like, I don't have enough control over what I do or, you know, my voice isn't listened to. I don't have meaningful input into into my work. If people are able to be conscious of, of what makes up their work and then from based on that know what is important to them, I guess this kind of comes into something we've probably skirted around in terms of not all jobs are for money. You know, people may choose a, a lesser paying role that has more meaning to them over over a higher paying role where they have no say over what they do. So I guess getting very philosophical here and getting very idealistic. It is a philosophical PhD. That's, that's, it is a doctor in philosophy. That is true. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I hope that people will continue to, I guess, break down what they want out of work and what they're not willing to stand for. And I, that's my unionist streak, I think. Um, you know, in an ideal world, we'd all rise up and revolt against the bosses, which is a very controversial thing for someone in a management school to say. Um, but yeah, I guess people just be knowing what they're willing to accept at work and what they're not. Yeah. Beautiful. I think that's a really great place to leave it. 
Dr. Zoe Port, thank you so much for spending some time with us talking about your PhD, bringing multiple job holding out of the moonlight, understanding the heterogeneity of multiple job holders in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So thanks so much. It's been awesome. Thank you. Thanks for watching this episode from season three of PhD Unpacked. For previous episodes from this season and seasons one and two, check us out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well as other listening platforms and follow us, PhD Unpacked. Instagram and TikTok.